Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the official broadcast of the world-famous Cheeky Jaguar Radio Broadcast. Coast to coast, border to border, on tune in, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Radio Loyalty. Give them some of your hard-earned money today. I always like those. From North Carolina, 66, Michael Jordan. Actually, hold on. We called the wrong number. We're going to call the other number first. We're going to call 66, Michael Jordan. We're going to call Michael Jordan. He's going to call up. We're going to call Michael Jordan first. Fantastic. And Hello. I believe there is Dr. Bruce. How are you, my friend? It's James Lowe from iHeartRadio giving you a call for your radio interview. How are you? Oh, oh how are you today? Pretty good, actually. We are going to get Dan Perkins and IQ Al Rizzoli in here and uh, get them as part of our broadcast day here. And uh, we have got a great guest with us here on the line. He joins us live. And uh, lots, of, lots of things to cover. And... Uh, we are definitely going to cover them here in just a few moments with uh, our our panel and uh, our guest, Dr. Bruce L. Hartman. He is the author of Jesus and Co. And I believe there is IQ Al Rizzoli. How are you, sir? I'm fine, sir. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good, actually. We have got uh, two great guests uh, joining us today in our first part of our program. We are going to talk to Dr. Bruce L. Hartman. He's the author of Jesus & Co., Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. And IQ Alvarezoli joins us today here in our broadcast. And uh, we are hoping Dan Perkins joins us here in a few moments as well on our big program. And... Uh, we're going to see if we can add Dan into the mix here. See if we can get Mr. Dan Perkins in here. Because I know that this this is a topic that I know Dan is going to be all over. So I don't want him to miss out. But while we're waiting on uh, while we're waiting on Dan, um, Bruce, tell us a little bit about your book here, my friend. Well, it's uh, a book that I wrote that was inspired um, because I thought that. Jesus has had a bad name in the workplace, and, you know, it's not common for people, whether they're having lunch together or in their offices or just walking around in the corridor to talk about Jesus. But I believe that Jesus is the most important person that any business can have. And, you know, I learned this um, two ways. One, I was a uh, corporate CFO for Fortune 500 companies and, you know, companies like Foot Locker and Yankee Candle. And every, when I, uh, I, at some point I said, you know, I've got enough in life. And I went back to college and got my master's degree in divinity and then just got my doctorate degree in uh, ministry. So what I was able to do was take both of those worlds and show that it is acceptable. And not only is it acceptable, 
but it's really wise to use the values of Jesus in the workplace. So that was the inspiration for writing the book, and uh, it's been well-received, and we, we get great reviews, and, and I think it's serving its purpose. We've got a uh, great guest with us today, Dr. Bruce L. Hartman. He is the author of Jesus and Co., Connecting the Lessons. And I believe there's Dan Perkins. Dan, can you hear us, my friend? Yes. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, we've got you, my friend. We've got uh, Bruce L. Hartman with us today. He's the author of Jesus and Co., Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. He is going to be with us here for our first half of our program, and then we have another guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. Now, um, tell us, uh, Bruce, uh, tell me, IQ, and Dan here a little bit about how uh, how did President Trump uh, use his business acumen to free Pastor Andrew Brunson from this Turkish prison? Give us your details on this. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the things uh, that's important in business is knowing when to compromise and when not to compromise. You know, and Jesus was very good at that. Uh, and one of the things that Jesus would do is when he needed to evangelize, he always assessed the situation. And, for instance, the woman at the, the well, the famous story in John 4, he took his time and kept nursing her and coaching her and helping her. And generally, that is the go-to attitude in the business world as well, whether you're talking with an employee or you're talking with your boss or you're talking with a customer. But every once in a while in life, you don't compromise. And for instance, Jesus, when he turned the tables in the temple, he was not in a compromising mode. Now, what what Mr. Trump did, or President Trump did, in um, releasing the pastor is he, he made it clear to, to Turkey um, in a number of ways, both in terms of uh, money and in terms of words and in terms of relationship, that he found it unacceptable that a pastor who only wants to do good in life cannot be released. And unless he is released, the benefits of doing business with the United States would end. Now, that's something Donald Trump learned when he was a real estate mogul in our country. Most of the time, you compromise, but then when you are going against the will of God, or you're going against what's best for your neighbor, you don't compromise. We've got a great guest with us today, Dr. Bruce L. Hartman. He's the author of Jesus and Co., Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. Dan Perkins with us today, also IQ Rizzoli. Um Dan, do you have any questions for our guest? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I would I would love to hear the perspective of our guest uh, in in comparing and contrasting the release of the pastor and the murder of the reporter. How the world is reacting to those two separate but unique events? Yeah the the release of the pastor and the murder of the uh, Washington Post columnist. Uh, I think they're very related in, 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 in this way, that there are certain things we can't compromise on. And the, the most primary thing you can't compromise on is something that works against the will of God. And certainly murder and kidnapping work against the will of God. That's where you can't compromise. I'm actually saddened by the death of the columnist. I'm heartened by the release of the pastor, 
But more importantly, I'm heartened by the amount of business people that have refused to go to the, they call it the Davos in, in the desert, which is a real, um, it's a real loss for Saudi Arabia because of their behavior to lose uh, people that are really important to them. And I think the world is uh, clearly making a statement that this, this type of behavior is not acceptable. And I know that Jesus would approve of that. So I see the comparison in you draw your line when you work against your neighbor. And I think that's what we're seeing the world do today. So I'm heartened, I'm heartened by that, but I'm also saddened by the loss of the columnist. But let me, let me uh, um, take your, your thoughts a little deeper. Um, we have uh, a part of that, that part of the world which really is not functioning in the 20th or 21st century. It's still functioning in the 7th century with the, with the initial uh, gift of the Koran and Sharia law. And, and one of the challenges that I see for the, royal, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia is that he himself, Western educated, knows that the, the, uh, the empire of petrodollars is diminishing rapidly and the largest source of revenue for OPEC, one of the largest sources was American because we were 65% dependent on foreign oil. Crown Prince laid out this plan of how he wanted to modernize and uh, westernize, in my words, the Saudi Arabia economy to diversify it away from petrodollars into uh, a, a more robust, diverse economy. Uh, there were people who were opposed to that because in order to, do, to accomplish that goal, the crown prince was going to have to start importing and trying to attract talent from the West. And uh, the talent from the West was going to be very reluctant to come to work in Saudi Arabia under the restrictive rules of Sharia law and, and the Koran. So he was trying to modernize. And I think that um, that we're seeing when, with the death of uh, Khashoggi is a man who was part of the Muslim Brotherhood, who was intimately involved in IQ, which knows this much better than me, intimately involved in, in with the government until he uh, did some things that got him fired or dismissed from the state-run newspaper. Uh, we, we're talking about two different cultures. Your, your approach to the release of the pastor in looking at Donald Trump is he approached it from a business standpoint, not from a Sharia law or for, from the Koran. And when it was, the decision was made for whatever reason to eliminate Khashoggi, I believe that was driven by the Koran, not by business practices. So they're really, they really are dramatically different. Their outcomes are different, but the rationale of how they proceeded was also dramatically different, I think. Yeah, I think that uh, those are really good points, um, and I think unfortunately for Saudi Arabia, they they've done they've done both the the Muslim faith and their country a tremendous disservice by having this riveted focus on um, eliminating 
I guess infidels is probably what uh, is probably the best word. So mm-hmm. what have they lost? You're, you're right. Petrodollars are declining, and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia actively right now is trying to train its citizenry um, through the use of U.S. colleges, and there's a couple of projects on the way. They're really struggling with that. Um, one because the population isn't used to American education. Number one. Number two, this is going to put a real um, crimp in his style and in his goals because people are going to see this as not really that much different than what we see in North Korea. So Saudi Arabia's kind of been exposed here um, as not being a place where you really can have a voice in. Heck, anything that that they want to have happen, they'll make happen, even if it um, involves human life. So I, I don't think, um, I still don't think that it varies from love thy neighbor. And that is still a, a, a value and a principle that exists, by the way, even in the Muslim religion. It's just the contemporary theological thought out of Muslims doesn't happen to agree with what all, all that's in the Quran. I would love to have IQ's take on this. Well, with all due respect to the pastor, uh, he doesn't know the Quran very well. I apologize to say that. There is absolutely not a single verse in the Quran that speaks of loving your neighbor. That doesn't exist anywhere. In fact, every single verse in the Quran incites the followers of Muhammad to hate non-Muslims called infidels. That's 80% of current humanity. But besides the point, what I would like to ask the pastor is what do you think the United States should do confronting 9,000 people who are invading the southern border? Well, first of all, I don't believe in invasion. uh, And I think that it's just just not not the rules of civilization, certainly not the rules of Christianity or Judaism. Um, in terms of the Quran, there is a misconception. When I'm talking about the Quran, I'm talking about the one that existed in the seventh century. Um, the contemporary thought, um, and much like what we have done as Christians here and there, um, but much more so with the Muslim faith, they've twisted the words to support power and to support people like the um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But what about the invasion coming from South, uh, from Mexico? What should America do? Well, uh, I think the so the folks that are coming from Guatemala and Nicaragua and this uh, caravan that uh, we want to meet at the border with uh, troops to me is um, silly because. These folks aren't coming um, as criminals. They're coming to look for a better life. Now, we have to all remember that their lives down there are far different than, you know, what we, the benefits that we have as Americans. What I, what I think that we're getting caught up with is there is a criminal element that comes across that border, and we should spend our time focused on that and who are we allowing into the, to the company. Uh, into the country, and we should approach that, I think, differently than holding out people that we could that could be good citizens of the United States, and they could be people that could be productive, that could pay taxes, and 
particularly if we made it, uh, we were more hospitable. Certainly, I would be far more aggressive with the folks that come across the border that are criminal, and those are the ones I would prevent, and I think we should spend our time focused on that. But I, w I would suggest to you that <clears throat> that if you look at it from the standpoint that once that person left their home country and now they did not have visa papers, when they crossed the border into the United States, whether we like it or not, they're illegal and they're criminal. And... And what does it say about their countrymen who have gone through the legal process of applying for visas to enter the United States legally? <clears throat> it seems to me that the, the problem here is that we want to create something special for these people because they've been on the road leaving their countries to come to the United States when other people in their country chose the legal path. So once you decide you're going to do something illegal, then you've committed a crime and therefore must be treated as such. Now, they may not be as much of a crime as somebody from MS-13 or drug runners or, or gun runners, but more or less, they basically crossed the border illegally, which makes them breaking the law. And they should, and we feel like they should be entitled I've heard this word that and the word right that they have a right to come here and they're entitled to come here neither of which are true they're not entitled and they don't have a right when they cross the border they've committed a crime they're criminals so um, I, I look at it slightly different I look at it from the heart in the sense that you know, when we look at the law, we always have to remember what we are as Americans. We're compassionate and we're kind and we're giving people. And if there is a disaster around the world, we are always the first to respond. The folks that are coming in this caravan um, have been put upon by um, illegal police activity in the community. Many of them can't feed their family. These are desperate people living desperate lives. So... I hear your point about soon, as soon as they cross the border, legally they've done something wrong. But this is only 4,000 people. I'm more concerned about what comes across the border that intends harm and name and, and does intend to be entitled uh, towards our country. Those are the people I think we should spend more of our time on. And I think that, you know, if we're going to be a compassionate com country, we have to also have a heart for what we're doing as well. But the, the Mexican newspapers are now reporting that the size of the caravan is 14,000. So that's different than four that you talked about, 14,000. Right. So I, I, yeah, I so, would, is there, so you is have, there you have more your, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. You have more... You have more up-to-date information than I do. The last, uh, the last one, the last bulletin I read was uh, yesterday, and it was four thousand. Yeah, but if you go budget today, they're now saying the Mexican government is now Mexican press is saying fourteen thousand. So my, I guess my okay. question would be then, in your mind, is there a number that comes across could come across 
that would be unacceptable to you? No, I, I look at it differently. I look at it um, as being a good neighbor. Um, I don't think that we should have anybody come across the border that is intent on doing harm to America. And you can, you can tell that, and we made our immigration policies less bureaucratic. Then we could get to these issues. Instead, what we've done is we've made it so bureaucratic, we can't sort out productive citizens from unproductive citizens. So that's where I think we should start, is start a process where it does make it easy for a desperate person who can't feed his three children. He has his wife who's pregnant. That's who's in this caravan. This isn't MS-13. This isn't the folks that have overwhelmed our country with fentanyl or cocaine or heroin. These are just people that I'm getting a break in life. And so I, that's where I separate immigration. I certainly don't think that we should have people come here that want to change our culture. I don't think we should have people that want to come here and take advantage of the American citizenry, whether they're immigrants or, or natural-born citizens. So for me, it's about the heart. It's not about the law. So the, the, the laws that, that regulate immigration in the United States under the Constitution, uh, because you have a heart, no, they don't apply? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that, you know, every law has um, the rules and regulations, and as Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But also, we also have to look at the circumstances. We can't be a country that's so riveted on following everything to a T, uh, dotting every I and crossing every T. We have to be broader. And this is one of the lessons of Jesus that Jesus brought to us was, sure, we have the Ten Commandments, but you also have to follow the Ten Commandments with your heart. And that is the message of Jesus. My question, with all due respect, there are 350 million people who want to come to the United States of America, from Latin America and from Africa. Where do you stop? Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people that want to come here, but I think it can be orderly and it can be done in a manner that doesn't overwhelm. Uh, but you must, we have had, with all due respect, you had Ellis Island, where people came by the millions. They were checked. And some of them were refused, but most of them were not refused. What we don't have is that anymore. We are having an invasion. And you are saying, with all your respect, you can separate the bad from the good. How will you separate the bad from the good when you have an invasion? I, I, think, you, I think you gave the answers. I think we set up an Alice Island. Um, and you set it up in, in the same way that that was set up, that it's an organized, it's an organized, uh, or, view. So there's a second piece of this though too. These people are leaving countries where there are despots and where there are dictators and there are illegal things that occur to them. They don't have a chance to make a living. And I think one of the things we should do as a country is remember these other countries. And instead of sending a hundred million dollars worth of airplanes to Saudi Arabia, I think we should be trying to help these other countries with their folks. But we have been doing that, America. Look, I'm from Iraq. I'm not an American. I'm from Iraq. The United States have been helping Muslim, well, the Muslim countries and the African countries for the last 100 years almost. With money, with help, with 
food, with medicine. What else uh, should America do beyond that? We are so not, you're not, you're not facing now. These 14,000 or 9,000 or 4,000 is irrelevant. They are not coming through Ellis Island. They are not coming through a due process. They are going to invade. They broke the barrier between uh, Mexico and Nicaragua or whatever other country it was. They're not coming here in peace. They're coming here to invade. And you, yeah, are so saying, well, you have to be compassionate. Why? So I what I was, the question I was asked was about the 14,000. It wasn't about the general immigration policy. I agree with you. We should have an Ellis Island. I agree with you that we should know who's coming across the border. But specifically as it related to these 14,000 people and what they compromise, what they comprised of. That's what my question was. And I want to get back to your point in Africa. Sure, we've been helping Africa for 100 years. Here's the problem with that. When we're sending money to Africa... How much of that do you think really gets to the people? Most of it ends up in the hands of the leaders of these um, of these regimes. So right. when you start, right. it's very little. But then, what do you do? What else? What other solution is it? Well, you know, this is this is part part of the part of the solution is to have a little bit more oversight when we are giving our money away that is hard-earned money by Americans is have a little bit more oversight. How can, they, how can a person like me who's riding a bike through, I did this um, bike trip across uh, Africa to raise money for the orphans uh, who had lost their parents with AIDS. How can I know this and our government officials not know this? And if they do know this, shame on them for letting it happen. I agree with so you. So that's why. With that, I agree with you. But there is no other solution at the moment. You give $100 million in the hope that $10 million will go to the people. You are right, look. <laughs> the United States right. government is paying hundreds of millions of dollars to Pakistan. What was Pakistan doing with the money? Undermining the United States. Well, again, so, so for instance, when I was a CFO for Foot Locker, there were certain countries we would not do business with. And I think our our country should take the same position. We would not do business in Pakistan. We would not do business in the Philippines. We would not do business in Malaysia. If we found out there was any human rights abuse or there was any, or we had to pay off officials to be able to rent, uh, rent stores, as a, as a corporation, we said, no, that's unacceptable. Our government has to get to the same position. When you see behavior like with this poor journalist, Tashagi, that's when we have to start drawing the line. We have to start comp not compromising with folks. When we see human rights abuses, we have to stop it. Because basically when we're giving people aid in Africa, it's not going to the average person that's supposed to. It's going to the, the top 1%. And as a country, if I know that just riding my bike across Africa then the American government has to know. And the point I'm trying to make here is that our, the people that we have that are running our country, they have to be patriots. And they're not patriots anymore. They're long-serving career folks that are looking to perpetuate their job and not necessarily look out for the best interests of American people or people of the world. I think somebody called that the swamp. <laughs> well, I I think that's a good way to describe it, but that's that's how you solve this problem. 
The thing that I look at is that uh, um, IQ specialty is the Middle East. Uh, uh, I'm I'm America and and Europe, and I, and I look at the, for example, um, if you were during the 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 period of assimilation in this country, prior to that, when we saw a, a significant immigration, there was a process. There was a process before you even got to Ellis Island. You had to apply for a visa to come to the United States to apply for citizenship, to go through the process. These people in the caravan, the 14,000 people, did not apply to anybody. So there are no papers. We, have, we can't distinguish the good guys from the bad guys by simply looking at them. There is no process. Once they got up from the table and they walked out the door and got on the road and started going north, we lost any information that we had about them. We have no way of knowing of the 14,000 that 4,000 of them aren't, aren't drug dealers or, 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 or uh, coyotes or whatever, or raping the women on the, on the train and the children the little, and the girls. My point is there is no process when you just walk and get in line and leave. There is no way for us in the United States. It's been the problem that the president talked about when he was trying to limit the immigration from certain Muslim countries that had terrorist ties because there was no way to get any information. And when you set that aside and you look at the traditional immigration process that is in play today, that's legal, you have to apply at the embassy. You have to go through a background check. All these things happen, and it takes years to go through the process to come into this country illegally. All of that is circumvented by these 14,000 or hundreds of thousands of people who've walked up to the border, no paperwork, no proof, and say, I want in. That's why I have a problem of taking people with no verification, and they're simply invading the country— 4,000, 9,000, 14,000, 11 million. If you come here with no papers to verify who you are, why should we let you come in? Well, I, yeah, that, I, I think we got to go back to the Ellis Island conversation because that's the right way to do it. But right now you've got 4,000 or 14,000 people on the road. And... Why can't we set up an L, a temporary Ellis Island down there to process the process? The because, it, because of what I just said, sir, there is no way to verify who these people are. They have no paperwork that says that the name that they're giving is actually their name. They don't have passports. They don't have travel visas. They have nothing. So there's if even if you set up an Ellis Island. On the border, there is no no way in which anybody in the United States government can verify that person when they walk across the border that they're actually who they say they are. They're not a wanted criminal. We have no way to verify that because there is no source of information. And in many of these countries, we will never get information because the governments will not cooperate in providing information on illegals coming in. So the process... Yeah, but I think... Oh, I think if you can't verify, why would you bring them in? So uh, my my point is here is I'm not talking about the American immigration policy. I'm talking about these fourteen thousand people or four thousand people that are coming, 
That's what I'm talking about. Um, there's nothing, you know, you turn them around at this point, you could be sentencing a lot of them to death. I think what we have to do is redo our immigration system. And I think what um, Ira said at the beginning, that's the solution it's, is to Ellis Island. But it shouldn't take us five years to process somebody from, um, from say, Dubai to come here to the United States. And that is ultimately part of the problem and why people work around the system. It didn't take them five years to get through Ellis Island. I think if we want to solve the problem, we've got to go to the start of the problem. And the start of the problem is we need to have patriots working for the, for the citizenry of the United States, and we don't have that. But my, my point is, sir, is that Ellis Island is, was, was part of an overall process that started in the home country where the individual filed for a visa to come to the United States. Legally, they had somebody who would sponsor them in the United States and, and, and account for them. When you bring in people into the United States and you have 97% of the people who come into this country under catch and release who never go back to their hearings, 97% never come back to their hearings, there is no way to verify who these people are and where they are. They just let them go. And so you're bringing people, good and bad, into our society and the bad will do bad against the American people if you don't have the cooperation of the government. The, and this is the issue that I think is being missed. The people who are in El Salvador and Guatemala who are legally applying to come to the United States have followed the process, the rules. The laws are there. It's those people who have made the choice to take the risk to travel the 2,500 miles, putting their potential their lives at stake with nothing to prove where they are, that because, quote, they made the 2,500-mile journey, you think we should take them in as a humanitarian effort? And I'm Yeah, and but I think, I think you're missing my point by probably 99 out of 100 yards on a football field. But my point is, I agree with Ellis Island. I agree with... The, the, we have to have an organized um, immigration process, and I actually think that you're right. You should probably be running the immigration for our country. I'm talking right now about four thousand to fourteen thousand people that don't have any money, they don't have any clothes, and I just want to tell you one thing while we're talking about these immigrants not following the law. I'm I am still the head of uh, this company called The Future with Hope. And essentially what we do is we help people during natural disasters. So, for, for instance, Superstorm Sandy. A lot of people got homeless. A lot of people, there was a lot of things they couldn't get to and they couldn't do. And it wasn't because they were bad people. It was because they just didn't know how. Our country is so difficult to navigate to get FEMA money, to get money from the state to ne negotiate this. And these aren't people that I'm talking about that are um, well-educated or, heck, even, you know, blue-collar. These are people that are at the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale. They don't understand what you just said. So there has to be a way to understand and have a heart for these people that are coming. I'm not talking about 
360 million people. I'm not even talking about 20,000 people. You got moms and dads and kids on the trail. Let's figure this out. But the bigger thing we should figure out is how do we make the immigration policies of this country more uh, more acceptable to uh, our citizenry, making sure we don't get criminals in here, and making sure the people that do have the ability to make us a productive country can come here, because all of us are sons and daughters of immigrants. Okay. Jim, well, uh, uh, we, we, we have our next guest calling in. Uh, I've got to get to him, but uh, Bruce, I appreciate the uh, conversation today. We've uh, had our great guest, Dr. Bruce L. Hartman. He's the author of Jesus and Co., Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. We're going to take a time out. We're going to be back with IQ Rizzoli and Dan Perkins here in just a few moments. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate it, my friend. And uh, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we have got more coming up here on our big broadcast, Coast to Coast, and Bona to Bona, it's TuneIn, it's iTunes, it's Radio Loyalty, and uh, check out Jesus & Co., connecting the lessons of the gospel with today's business world. It's available on Amazon. More here in a few. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.